0: Don't judge me, the show about the law in real life. I'm Laura Temmie and I'm joined by Joe Fawbush. Hello. Hi, and Andy Leonetti.
1: Hi Laura. Hi Joe. <laughs> Andy, what, <laughs>
0: are you are you sad that we're not doing another show of just you and me yelling at each other?
1: I have <laughs> This topic saddens me a little bit, but <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, you know, I I expected you to make fun of us for covering kind of a nerdy legal topic, but I didn't think it would make you sad that that I didn't
1: say <laughs> that. <something>. that <laughs> sad might be a little unfair. I, that's <laughs> true.
0: <laughs> so today we're talking about arguably the most important case in Supreme Court history. So I'm sorry, Andy, we're going to talk about uh, Supreme Court opinion again. And it's a very old one. I don't know if you took a chance to try to read it, but I I remember reading it in law school. And I'm glad that Joe is the one who had to read it most recently because it's a good one.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I I don't recommend it for you listening at home. It's it's a fascinating (laughs) case in a fascinating time in history, and it is an incredibly dull opinion. Do not not
1: cast thine (laughs) eyes upon thy noble... (laughs) <laughs> opinion
0: upon upon 1803's marbury versus madison
1: where all the s's are f's <laughs> and all the U's are v's and all that <laughs> stuff
0: oh i didn't i had forgotten about that part yeah but yeah it means we're, we're talking about the the origins sort of i'll get to why later but the sort of origins of judicial review in the united states and Joe, I know you've written pretty extensively about this case, so why don't you kick us off here?
2: Yeah, sure. I thought I'd first start with a topic that I know you'll love, Laura, which is politics among the Founding Fathers. <laughs> we've, got, <Yes. laughs> we've got Jefferson, we've got Adams, we've got the Chief Justice, John Marshall, and uh, we've got lots and lots of anger and political intrigue. I got to
1: stop you here. I also enjoy politics among the founding fathers very much so. I however
0: Yeah, Andy does Andy just doesn't try to sing about it like yes, I do. Yes,
2: okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're just I not promise, a musical theater nerd.
0: <laughs> I have promised these two that I will not rap, so I will not do it.
2: <laughs> you can and but should. I
0: will say I will say, if you want a fun taste of some of the politics going on here, check out the song The Election of 1800 from Mm -hmm. Hamilton, which addresses some of the setup to this story. Okay, now (laughs) I'm
2: Nice. Yeah, so uh, (laughs) just as you said, this is about the election of 1800. So Adams, our listeners may be familiar with, was a Federalist. The Federalist Party was based out of New England. Uh, This was Hamilton himself, and Adams, and a few other prominent New Englanders, federalists, typically wanted a strong central government, whereas Democratic Republicans, which was headed by Jefferson and Madison, were much more interested in republicanism and uh, wanted to keep government as small as possible. So that was kind of the basic setup. And in 1800, the Republican Democratic party was winning, and Jefferson won the election of 1800. But at that time, there was a big gap between when a president was elected and when a president was inaugurated. So there was a good year that Adams had to do what he wanted while he was waiting for Jefferson to get sworn in. And what Adams wanted to do was pack the judicial branch with Federalists, and this was going to hobble Jefferson throughout his term. It was going to keep Federalists in power. And Jefferson did not like that. This has mm-hmm. never been tried again. <laughs> 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 oh. Yep. The more things change, the more this, they stay the same. Is
0: unheard of. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so for anybody frustrated with our current political dysfunction, uh, we have a long history of it. Um, mm-hmm. So Adams was able to appoint most judges that he wanted, including the Chief Justice, John Marshall, but he was not able to complete all of them. So there were a few outstanding appointments that people were waiting on, Federalists uh, were waiting on receiving. So one of the Federalists waiting for his appointment was William Marbury. He was a financier, and he was going to be appointed Justice of the Peace for Washington, D.C., uh, but he was not delivered his commission because Jefferson told his secretary of state, James Madison, not to deliver it. So Marbury asked the U.S. Supreme Court to issue a writ of mandamus to force Madison to deliver the commission.
1: Unrelated uh, question here. I'm sorry. I have to ask. <laughs> was the original secretary of state's job really that of a secretary? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I I I never thought about it that way, but it does based on this case it does kind of sound like it, doesn't it? I would hope they'd be sending an intern to do that. Like
1: Carry on. No, that's okay.
0: It was probably the secretary of state's stable boy or something like that like go deliver this letter.
2: Uh, that's that's funny. Yeah, but um so Marbury asked the Supreme Court to issue a writ of mandamus. A writ of mandamus is just asking the court to force the a government employee to do something. And so the question here was does the Supreme Court have the authority to do this, to issue the writ of mandamus? And also, did Marbury even have a right to the commission and was the writ of mandamus a proper remedy? Again, like I said, when you read this, it sounds incredibly boring, right? Like, who cares whether the Supreme <laughs> Court issued a writ of mandamus? But the issue here is the dilemma that was facing the Chief Justice John Marshall, because, and I think I forgot to mention this, but John Marshall was a Federalist himself. I mean, I mentioned that uh, he was appointed by Federalists, but he himself was a prominent Federalist. So he was invested in this fight in a way that, we would now consider would be something of a conflict of interest. Um, And so he definitely wanted the Federalists to retain some power. But if he just told Jefferson to deliver the commission, Jefferson may very well have just said no, because this was his political rivals and, you know, the Supreme court didn't have the same kind of authority back then that it does now. If he did ask the, ask Jefferson to deliver the commission, it might be, reducing the power of the Supreme Court by having that order just flat out ignored. But if Mm -hmm. he just kind of caved and said, "Okay, no, we're not going to ask you to do that. Well, then that's also a little bit of a reduction in its authority. But what's interesting about this case is not just the holding, but also the way that Marshall was able to get power for the Supreme Court, despite siding with his rivals and the Democratic Republicans so how did he do this uh well he said that marbury has a right to the commission and that a writ of mandamus was the proper remedy in essence what he was doing was framing jefferson as being in the wrong here and and violating the law so he kind of started with that but then he said the supreme court does not have the right to issue the mandamus and he did this because he said that the act the federal act under which he was asking for this writ of mandamus, exceeded the original jurisdiction given to the courts in the Constitution, specifically Article 3, Section 2. And why this is important is because we had not yet established at this point that it was the Supreme Court is able to declare an act of Congress unconstitutional. At the time, there was quite a few different thoughts among the Founding Fathers about which branch would have ultimate responsibility for deciding whether a law was constitutional or not. Uh, Jefferson himself was under the impression that it should be all branches of government, Uh, but many Federalists, including Hamilton and obviously the Chief Justice, thought that it was the judicial branch that should have the ultimate authority. And so by framing this as a way of giving Jefferson the win... Jefferson wasn't gonna pursue it because he had won. But mm-hmm. but he set it up in a way where the court was ultimately responsible for judicial review and could declare an act of Congress unconstitutional, and they thereby basically it was a power grab, and so he grabbed authority that way.
1: So he gave he gave his own court the authority. Correct. Right. Yep.
2: Yeah. I wish so I could it, do that. Yeah. I mean, it it was an incredibly uh, deft political maneuver. Yeah. Some Um, might say brazen. (laughs) (laughs) It was. But, you know, on the other hand, um, that set up judicial review that we've used ever since. And actually, that authority that he gave himself has been mimicked in constitutions all around the world because judicial review is not in our constitution, but it is in many constitutions around the world, that it's ultimately the responsibility of the judicial branch to determine whether a law is constitutional or not. Marshall never actually again declared an act of Congress unconstitutional. It wasn't until about a century later that the Supreme Court started citing it as precedent for judicial review. So it was kind of a slow burn. Mm -hmm. But now it has this place in our history of it, you know, it's a decision that took place around the time that the constitution was created. So it goes way back. And also it's just, it's worked. I know that there's some controversy even still about whether this was the right decision, but uh, for the most part, people kind of accept judicial review as a fundamental aspect of our co-equal branches of government. So that's the short cliff nosed version of Marbury v. Madison. I I hope there is a first year law student out there listening, and that I just saved you a little bit of trouble in reading the case.
0: Yeah, because it's it's what two hundred pages. I don't. Know what? You know. yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> I might be exaggerating, but
2: <laughs> it sure feels like it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's really long. It feels like 200 pages when it's written in 1803 playfair language. Yeah. Like, it's just it's very it's very hard. But uh, yeah, it is an interesting decision because today people know the Supreme Court as the place where the buck kind of stops and, you know, they're the ones who determine whether Laws passed by the states and Congress comply with the Constitution. But like Joe points out, that power isn't in the Constitution itself.
1: Whoa, I wonder Uh, what Ron Paul thinks about that.
0: (laughs) that. I mean, that is true. But one thing that I wanted to bring up is that the power of judicial review was used in the United States before the Constitution was even written. Um, Between 1776 and 1787, there were several state courts that invalidated laws which violated their state constitutions. And these state courts reasoned that where an act of the state legislature and the state constitution are in conflict, the state constitution wins. And that's sort of also the basis of judicial review for the Supreme Court. It's the same logic where the power to declare a law unconstitutional is seen as an implied power derived from articles three and six of the constitution. So article three establishes the Supreme court as the highest court in the land. And then article six, specifically the portion known as the supremacy clause states that the constitution quote, and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof. I just love reading the constitution. It's fun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> shall be the Supreme law of the land. And so, yeah, you kind of, it's the same logic that the state courts were using. If you if you want to get real nerdy about it, you can read number 78 of the Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton where he Oh, sorry, was... I'm only
1: on 71.
0: <laughs> well, he wrote 51 of them, so you know, if you want to read all of his, it's going to take a while. <laughs> the other guys wrote like eight. <laughs> anyway, but in number 78 he argues for the idea of judicial review and st- Uh, wrote that the courts were designed to be an intermediate body between the people and the legislature in order, among other things, to keep the latter within the limits assigned to their authority. My other favorite thing that he wrote, (laughs) I just like this. I like this quote because it's a a moment where Hamilton seems a little bit self-aware for a second where he's like, oh, occasionally I need to just get to the point. (laughs) (laughs) And so he says, if there should happen to be an irreconcilable variance between the two, that which has the superior obligation and validity ought, of course, to be preferred. Or in other words, the Constitution ought to be preferred to the statute. It's like, why didn't you say that the first time?
2: They didn't have much to do except for to or, write letters or
0: edit or so, yeah.
2: Men, of, men of scholarship.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, indeed.
2: <laughs> can I just say um, that we we might have to start video streaming these podcast recordings <laughs> so that all why? of you can see Andy's face as we're talking about the Federalist Papers.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I have a copy of the Federalist Papers somewhere. I know I do. Um. I'll I'll mail it to you, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
1: <laughs> well, it's interesting that we that it took a hundred years and now it seems that we've just have kind of gotten ourselves into a state as a uh as a body politic that basically anytime time a large law of consequence is passed, that everyone just basically says, well, Let's wait till the Supreme Court has a chance to weigh in because someone on the losing side of whatever legislation we're talking about, someone is inevitably going to sue to overturn said law. And now we just wait for the Supreme Court to weigh in. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and Justice Barrett in her confirmation hearing, confirmation hearings last year, kind of cited Marbury as a quote, super, super precedent.
0: Um, (laughs) Ooh, that's fun. Yeah. (laughs) And I've never heard that before.
1: uh, It just kind of, it kind of raises the, the Supreme court to the level of kind of extra, extra legislature.
2: Does it not? Well, I will say that, and I'm not, I'm not the only one to think this, but Thomas Jefferson would not be a fan right now of our current makeup i think i think it's pretty mm. safe to assume that because yeah he he was not a fan of anything that took away power from congress he was big and uh you know elected officials doing the vast majority of the work and nine unelected judges appointed for life deciding the constitutionality of laws would not have flown over well with him
1: yeah congress is pretty good at uh delegating work away from themselves on their own they don't they don't really need the (laughs) (laughs) they they don't really need the judiciary to take it away from them
2: (laughs) they can't give it away fast enough (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, oh also i want to i want to jump in with my own nerdy little bit here um noting on the kind of you know while we know what the big issue about marbury v madison is on the on the other subject, the original intent of the case, just uh, you know, the delivering of the commissions, yeah, that is actually a similar case is now unfolding. Really? Yeah. At the end of the Trump administration, the president made uh, dozens of last-second appointments to a lot of um, boards and commissions and such. These are positions that do not require Senate confirmation including two appointments that he made to the national board for education sciences to meet. It's a commission that is required by law to meet three times a year and prepare an annual report for Congress and the department of education on something, (laughs) Um, (laughs) on something, something. um, do whatever you want. But anyway, so the Department of Education now, obviously under the helm of the Biden administration, has refused to deliver those commissions to, to those appointees. One of which is, is uh, John Yoo, as we all are more famously known as the author of the, of the Bush administration torture memos, uh, to, oh. to, to serve on this commission. Now this is exact this is pretty much the exact same uh kind of course of action that's going down now the, the the current administrator is literally refusing to deliver these commissions to the appointees who have offered to take themselves you know drive themselves to the Department of Education headquarters <laughs> to receive these commissions um but as such the the board has not been able to meet yet uh, they missed their statutory deadline for writing their annual report. And so now there is a federal lawsuit.
2: That is absolutely the same same set of facts. Yeah. That's great.
1: So the the lawsuit uh, is Hanke, uh, which is Stephen, Stephen Hanke, H-A-N-K-E, a professor of applied economics at John Hopkins University, and John Yu, who is now a professor at UC Berkeley versus Secretary of Education Cardona? So take that, guys. Um. <laughs> oh, that's
0: great. I I don't know why you're acting like the, like we told you you couldn't talk about. Us. I don't know why you're so upset. <laughs>
1: the most recent version of the kind of overhaul of massive overhaul of voting rights and elections laws that the democratic congress is keeps trying to put together um and pass in some form where where the house will pass and then it'll die in the senate unless they unless (laughs) they throw unless they throw the filibuster in the trash let's just you know, gotta get that out there yep. again. The but the the latest iteration of this bill, which was refiled in August, uh, features a pretty uh, strong assault on the Supreme Court's ability to provide judicial review in these election in a lot of election law cases. Um, so you could probably just call it a a message at this point, knowing that they don't have the votes in the Senate, but pretty clear where the thinking is starting to move on the, on the democratic side of the aisle. It would repeal the uh, quote Purcell principle, which is kind of the, the theory that con that the Supreme court uses essentially not to rock the boat on election rules changes close to an election, basically. Um, It would forbid both the Supreme Court and federal appeals courts from citing proximity to an election as an excuse to reinstate a voting restriction. It would also bar the justices from considering, quote, a state's generalized interest in enforcing its enacted laws, end quote, when deciding whether to block or permit election regulation and it instead compels the court to quote give substantial weight to the public's interest in expanding access to the right to vote end quote um it can all it also bars the supreme court from setting aside a lower court decision expanding voting access unless it finds that burdens on the state quote substantially outweigh the public's interest in expanding access to the ballot and they cannot set aside district court's factual findings unless they're, quote, clearly erroneous. And, and it must provide a written explanation laying out its reasoning. So also saying, suck it, shadow docket.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <Shadow. laughs> um,
0: wow. Yeah, that, that is really interesting. It's just kind of <laughs> telling, telling them exactly what to do.
2: Yeah. Well, and we did talk about this, I think, ages ago, when we talked about how we could get the Supreme Court makeup changed a little bit. I mean, Congress Mm -hmm. does have the authority to tell the Supreme Court that you can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, um, yeah, they just typically don't do that. A lot of times it's in Congress's self-interest to let justices kind of take the fall for some of these things um if you're taking the cynical approach it's that you know they can argue no one does that no no (laughs) i'm not i'm just saying if you would uh yeah it, it allows some people in congress to kind of be vociferous in their opposition to something and then say oh it's all it's all those justices on the supreme court um but yeah congress can take that away
1: yeah it's just it's like I was saying before, it's kind of funny how we've just allowed ourselves as a country over however many couple hundred years. I've lost count um,
0: <laughs> what year is it to
1: kind of view the judiciary as the as the kind of default stand in for the the wisdom of the founders, you know what I mean yeah mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. versus these villain villainous both executive and legislative and legislative branches um mm. when as you know i'll i'll keep my opinions to myself i guess but
2: um, <laughs> what I, why start now yeah.
1: but the but the explosive use of the shadow docket over the last couple of years has uh i think i think has called
2: that wisdom into question <laughs> Well, it doesn't just need to be your opinion. I think if you look at polls taken, you know, Congress is, of course, the least trusted branch of of government, but uh, the Supreme Court is slowly and steadily falling. They once enjoyed pretty near unanimous support as much as anything in a country as big as ours can get anyway. Um, but yeah, slowly but surely, that's been eroding. So, so
1: guys, why, why now? Why, why did you, why did you big old dorks want to (laughs) talk about, want to talk about judicial review now?
0: Well, as Joe alluded to earlier here, I always want to talk about Hamilton. (laughs) Um, But it's partially because the, the subject of judicial review is sort of, back in the news again it is because of i know i'm sure you haven't seen it andy you don't pay attention to anything um (laughs) but uh yeah it's it's a question that has come up in regards to the new texas abortion law because and we will talk about this a bit on sidebar next week but it seems yeah doing a teaser this time uh but it's been pointed out that this law was written in such a way that it kind of avoids judicial review so we'll talk about that next time
1: to be continued
0: (laughs) (laughs) and that's all we have for today thank you so much for joining us on this episode of find laws don't judge me please subscribe to rate and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts check the show notes for related content and if you'd like to contact us send us an email at findlawpodcasts at thompsonreuters.com